Before his retirement, one of my college professor's uncles was responsible for scheduling the maintenance of all the airplanes at a major airline out of Miami's International Airport. This past week, as Cindy and I had the opportunity to get away for our anniversary, we were looking at doing a helicopter ride to be able to um, get a closer look at Mount Rushmore. And Cindy said, what do you think? And I said, mm, I don't think I want to do that. And she was shocked because if I can fly, if I can anything with aviation, I'm like all over that. And she said, why don't you want to do that? And I said, I'd like to see his service records first. And it's funny, the longer, the more time I spend in aviation, the more I am concerned with, do they do their maintenance? Do they follow the schedule they're supposed to be on? Because I love flying, but I like landing as well. And I was thinking about, you know, what an incredible responsibility. You always think of the, the man with the four stripes on his shoulder or on his sleeves, and you say, there's the captain. But it's not just the captain that makes flying enjoyable, is it? It is the person who does the maintenance. It's the person who makes sure that everything is done the way it should be done. And I was thinking about this incredible responsibility of doing exactly what's called for and keeping up with the details. Today, as we look at 1 Timothy, Timothy was written as a, a guidebook, a handbook to understand the way a local church should function. You know, Paul first wrote these, uh, this is the first of Paul's pastoral epistles, which would be 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, and they call them pastoral epistles because they give guidelines to pastors as for how a church should function. And as we read this, I want to just encourage you to always be thinking about the fact this is talking about for the most part, you're going to be reading how the church should do things. It's not describing what you do in your homes. This is a manual. This is a guideline, a reference source for what should it look, what should the church look like. So Paul wrote to Timothy, this first of the pastoral epistles, as he was leading the Ephesian church. Now we've read about the church in Ephesus in... Uh, to the book to Ephesians. We've also read about the church in Ephesus as we read in Revelation. And you begin realizing this was a very important church. It was an early church. It was one that was, Paul wrote this so that Timothy could guide the Ephesian church in having a right focus, what's important in a church, and how do you worship in public? How do you do this? Now, routine is a wonderful thing. We get used to routine, whether it's in our families or in churches or even on roads, and we get used to just doing things and we don't think about why we do them so much as we just do them. And routine is a blessing. Habits are blessings. But underneath habits, there ought to be a firm foundation of we do this because of this. Why do we sing in church? Why do we read? Why do, why do we have someone do a public reading of Scripture in the church? Isn't the preaching just enough? You begin thinking about 
Why do we meet in person as compared to just saying, you know what, we can, we can meet online and online is going to be good enough? Well, there are a number of reasons why we do what we do. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at chapter 2. The end of chapter 1 kind of leads into it. We're going to look at chapter 2. But in chapter 1, Paul challenged Timothy to pay attention to doctrine. Now, doctrine is one of those things that we know is important, but it's not warm and fuzzy. If you ask people why they attend the church they do, often it is not the word doctrine that first comes to mind. Usually it's relationships, it is maybe the, the style of worship at that church that someone really likes, and maybe they would say, oh yeah, well, everyone understands doctrine's most important, so maybe that is what they think, but I don't hear that said very often. And so Paul takes a moment and he says, focus on the body of faith. Now for us today, we don't use that term as often, but the body of faith is God's word. The body of faith, as we look at that, is God's word. It is um, the thing that guides us. He said, focus on the body of faith, the scriptures. Don't be sidetracked with the what-ifs and the maybes. You see... Paul says the goal of the church is to have people that have pure hearts and good or clear consciences and genuine faith. Right doctrine is the only way to accomplish this. So in verses 18 through 20, he talks about the dangers of false doctrine. This charge, what we were just talking about, of making sure that he was going to keep giving out faithfully God's word. This charge I commit or I deposit with thee, which means he was, it just wasn't for Timothy, but it was to Timothy for everyone else, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest by them war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So Paul gives the illustration of straying away from true doctrine. Two men who had strayed from true doctrine and the discipline that came to them because they had strayed from true doctrine. It was a not conscience that he was talking about, but faith. He talks about shipwrecking the faith. Now this passage isn't teaching that you can lose your salvation. It isn't saying these men, because they did these things, they lost their salvation. The word shipwreck here means catastrophe, but it doesn't simply mean death. Maybe a better way to consider this is that false doctrine is making shipwreck of the body of truth, which compromises, or rather, which comprises the Christian faith. Faith is the faith, the body of doctrine. When these men were going off, they were in fact stealing the joy and the confidence that comes from being solid in their doctrine. Poor teaching always makes a catastrophe of Christian doctrine. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 addresses the question of what was being taught. 
Hymenaeus appears to be mentioned again. He was teaching that the resurrection was past. Now, one of the Bible teachers, a man named Homer Kent, suggests that these men possibly spiritualized the doctrine of the resurrection and then denied any bodily resurrection because Jesus Christ did not bodily rise from the dead. Now, sometimes you'll hear a word called a preterist, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. A preterist is one who teaches that all prophecy information that we've been studying out of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and about a year ago we talked about out of Daniel chapter 9. A preterist believes that all prophecy was completed in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And that there's nothing left. Therefore, when we die, there's nothing else left. There's nothing that we're looking forward to. Can you see how if you take that position, what great damage it would do? The what we believe about what is to come is what gives us as believers in the New Testament era great hope because of the promises God has, has given to us. Then we come to this section where he says, deliver them to Satan. What does that mean? Paul took a very stern position on those who hurt the church body by their doctrine or by their actions. Maybe some of you immediately think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where he talks about deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now remember, that is not a mean and nasty statement. Paul is not getting even. What Paul is saying is, he says, deliver such an one over to the destruction of the flesh for the saving of the soul. It's always the issue of what we do is always for the benefit of others because we love them and we want them to come back. This doctrine is going to hurt them. Therefore, Paul said, I'm going to give them over to Satan's domain. How do you do that? He removed them from the local body so that they would really see. There's two things. One, they would see the error of their way. They would see where that's taking them so that they would come back. The goal is always restoration. And that's going to be consistent with 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, which we studied together. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in the evil one. You see, the removal from the local body was corrective. If allowed to continue, it not only... If you allow false doctrine to continue in the church, it not only hurts the church, but it also gives the false impression to the person that's doing wrong that they're on the right path. You see, discipline, whether it's in your home or whether it's in a church, is always for good. It's for benefit. It is not out of anger. The word uh, Alexander is such a common name, we really don't know for certain if it was the same as Alexander the coppersmith. In fact, um, maybe because he said calls him Alexander the coppersmith, it could be that he was trying to differentiate between 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Alexander, and 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he calls him Alexander the coppersmith. I don't know for certain. It, it would make sense to me that he's trying to differentiate the two names. So having addressed now this idea of doctrine, we're going to get to our topic today. But I didn't want to skip over that because sometimes those are questions you may have and you would say, so how does this fit in? What does this mean? So he addresses the importance of doctrine in the local church, and now he's going to talk about public worship. What's important in public worship? So let's look at chapter 2, 
beginning at verse 1. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Wherefore, for this reason, I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity or truth. I'm going to pause there because I want us to look at this first aspect of public worship. He begins by saying, because doctrine is important and you need to stay focused on that, he says, now let me give you a list of some other things that are really going to be important in the church. He says, I exhort, therefore, I teach, therefore, that, here's the first thing on the list. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. So having reminded Timothy of the severe danger and response to damaging the local body, Paul, Paul now talks about public worship. And the first on the list for public worship is prayer. These verses have to be concerning, I believe they must be concerning public prayer. Otherwise, if it was describing private worship or household worship, it wouldn't make sense in the context of what he's describing. Verses 9 and 12 would be very difficult to interpret if this was not specifically describing public worship. So let's think about this. He says, first of all, I exhort. I don't think his point was to say prayer is the most important thing. I believe he was giving a list as you're going to go through all of um, 1 Timothy. But I do believe it is very important. Um, prayer reminds us of our need and of our Father's desire. You see, Paul presents this aspect of prayer in public forums. And we always make prayer a part of what we do. How often when we get together as a group, anytime we've got a group of us together to do something, a very common thing we do is pray. But it's not just a ritual. There's a purpose for it. And the purpose is it helps us to refocus and it also allows us to remember what's important to God. So we're going to see that after Paul presents the importance of prayer, he's going to talk about who should pray and how they should pray. Why do we have, why, why is it that, you know, I prayed this morning, but why is it that we don't just always have the pastor pray? Why is it that we have others in the church praying? Well, he's going to address that. So first of all, he's going to talk about our attitude in these prayers and then for whom we pray. And the goal is that all men would be saved. So let's look beginning at verse 1. He gives four aspects of prayer there in verse 1. He said, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. He talks first of all about supplications, the idea there of entreaties. And the idea of a supplication is the expression of need. When we get together, it is not to just impress God with what we are or what we can do. 
But as we, as part of our worship service, as we pray, we're expressing the fact we can't do this without God. We have a very distinct need. It describes the great need of gifts and blessings from God. We acknowledge our great need that only God can meet. The idea of going from supplications to prayers. Prayers is a general term, but it's also restricted to deity. It's restricted to God. Um, the idea is we're coming before God. We have needs, but the one to whom we turn is God Almighty. It's recognizing that we're not capable of our own. It has the idea of reverence, of revering, of recognizing that God alone can do this. It also has the idea of worship, of, of our focus on him. Intercessions has the idea of coming close in free access, like a child would come, in confidence that God will hear us, that we are confident that we can intercede and talk with him. We don't have to fear that God doesn't want to hear us. We know he wants to hear us. The only thing that keeps us from feeling that openness with God is usually sin. Or because maybe we're still trying to decide what's God wanting to accomplish? Why does God do this? Why is God doing this? I just want to be in line with whatever God wants. But knowing God's character allows me to pray confidently with what I believe God would want done. Intercessions can be for others, but it's not exclusively, exclusively for others. It can be for one's own self. And then the giving of thanks. Thanks should be always in our prayers. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You know, no matter what our condition, every one of us has been greatly blessed. Unthankfulness is a sin and is linked to unholiness, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So now, he tells us we ought to pray, but notice the end of verse 1 and then verse 2, he talks about the object of our prayer. What's the subject? What, what is the object? He talks about all men. It's unlimited. It's not restricted to just believers. Notice what he says, for all men, then specifically for kings and for all that are in authority. Now, at the time, a man named Nero was king, emperor. Nero was a rotten scoundrel. Nero was selfish and self-centered. Nero was a murderer. Nero was a man who did not care about other people. And when you have a person like that, what would you think is the natural response of people to that kind of a person? They would hate him. They would want to do him harm. They would not speak peaceably about him. Their prayers would be, God, smite him hip and thigh and destroy him. And yet, what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, make sure that in your public worship, you're praying for those that are in authority. And make sure you're praying for them specifically. If you were to go down a little, be, go a little further, we're praying specifically that they would get saved. We're interceding for them. 
not against them. Now, how does that impact us? Well, you see, this contrast in attitude between what the Jews would have felt and maybe the Jews even toward the Gentiles. What about people in their community? What about people that had other belief systems than what they believe? Pray for them. See, all of a sudden how it changes the view. I, I told you when I was when I was driving a bus, one of the things that I had to, I realized in myself, I was prejudiced against people who had a lot of ink on their skin. I was afraid of them. I was afraid of what they might do. Why? Not because I knew them, but because of what I thought about them. You know what really can change your attitude very quickly is when you begin praying for someone's soul. You begin praying that they would come to know the Lord. What I realized was ink is just ink. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't... um, There aren't issues that come when you ink your skin. It's a very permanent decision. It can have lifelong decisions. Some of you, if you've listened to Mike Maynard's um, song about he got a tattoo, and he talks about it used to say, wow, and now that he's gotten older and it's all sagged, now it says, it used to say mom, and now that he's gotten older and it's sagged, now it says, wow. It's a short-sighted decision, but what I want you to know is that's not, that's not a big issue. There's a person there. You know, we're struggling in our society right now with skin color, but not just skin color. We're dealing with all kind of differences that people have. Can you imagine how this would change our nation if we would be focusing on praying for their salvation? If we began thinking about their soul Cindy and I were um, in the Black Hills area and uh, we went down to Medora and the thing that stood out in my mind, a lot of people looked different. Some had boots, some had sneakers, some had shorts, some had jeans, some had cowboy hats, some had baseball caps and you could kind of go through all the differences and as I'm sitting there and I'm watching the program and I'm watching all the people. consciously thought that's a person just like me that's going to live somewhere forever they're here wanting a little break wanting to be entertained from all the pressures that they feel but they're going to walk away from this program and not be any different with God. It's so easy to lose sight that each person we know is going to live somewhere forever. And because of maybe what our parents told us to protect us, or because of what someone looked like, 
that uh, scared us. We don't think about their soul. We think about ourselves. I had a friend when he, I was growing up who had two Great Danes, monstrous animals that were house dogs. And these Great Danes were very loving unless you wore a hat. If you wore a hat into their house, there was no guarantee you were going to come out with all of the same appendages that you had when you went in. And they would warn you. They would say, take your hat off. Why? Well, they hate hats. Now, I don't know what caused that. I do know that you never wore a hat in there. It didn't change the person. It didn't matter your skin color. It was your hat. Can, can you see how that happens in our society today? We go around and we look. He's got a hat. I hate him. Paul says, in all your services, pray for all men. Pray for the mean and nasty leaders that you have. It makes me sad to hear how awful and how ugly we have become in our conversations in society. Everything is mean and strident. Do you know how this can change in our churches? The church is the one that will change America. It's not going to be this next election. I don't know who's going to be elected. I think we always ought to be concerned and vote for right. Find someone, you, you look and compare them and say, all right, who is going more the right direction than the other person is? If you're looking for some, if you're saying, I'm, I'm not going to have a part in something because I don't agree totally with them, you're never going to have an, an official like that. Think about how many Christians have even disappointed us. Prayer for those who are in authority. You see, that also reminds us to be submissive. Why? Because God tells us in Romans chapter 13, the powers that be are ordained by God. doesn't mean that they're good. It does mean that God can use them to change us. He talks about all men. talks about praying for our community then, wouldn't it? For kings, for all that are in authority. If I could just pause here. Over the years, prayer meeting has become something that is not viewed as really important. And public prayer, I remember one, one dear man, a good friend of mine, who would never pray in public. And it, it came down to, he said, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what other people will think. I'm afraid of not saying the right thing. And you know, I, I think he reflects often what I see in public. People who don't want to pray. People who are afraid to pray. Yet what did Paul say? Paul said, Timothy, public prayer is really important. And we're going to find in the next sermon that it's not just pastors. I try really hard not to just spring something on you 
some of you are very comfortable to say, no, I don't mind. Even if someone else has backed out at the last minute and you would need for me to pray, I don't mind doing that. But I would encourage all of you to really consider how important is corporate prayer. Why do we have a prayer meeting? Why do we print a prayer sheet? Why do we have those things on that sheet? It's important that we pray for one another. It's important that we pray for our own requests, but it's also important that we pray for our community, that we pray for our state, that we pray for our nation. And I would encourage you, if you can, always make prayer meeting important. In fact, prayer meeting is one of the things that will impact the way the rest of the week goes for this church. Now, he gives the reasons for prayer. Look at the end of verse 2 through verse 4. He says, That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A lot of our, prayer, of our praying is going to be evangelistic. It has to be because why? We're looking at this and he says, this is good that you pray for kings and for them that are in authority, for all men. Why? Because all men need to come to the knowledge of the truth. All men need to be saved. So with respect to the church, prayer produces a tranquil and quiet attitude. You see, an outward of... Uh, this tranquil and quiet attitude is an absence of outward disturbances and tranquility that arises from within. It's not talking about that when we pray that everything in the world is going to be changed because our eschatology tells us there is yet days coming that things will get really bad. I don't know the timing of that. In fact, I believe we are not past the day of great evangelism. I believe Fargo is ripe for evangelism because many people are religious. They have a respect for God. They just don't know Jesus Christ. And we can go out and we can tell them and we could see this huge change in our society today. You see, each of us needs to be reminded that we can appeal to the supreme ruler. I must admit, I get very frustrated when I listen to the news. I get very frustrated when I listen to their solutions for our problems. And there are times when in my flesh, if I did not know that I know the supreme authority, what do you do but you turn to violence? And that's exactly what we're hearing. People who don't know God and they see injustice, what do they do? They turn to more injustice. Hopefully that makes sense as you look at the world around you and you see people that are shooting other people, people that are hurting other people. Why do they do that? Because they say, that's wrong and that's got to be fixed. What does God say? Pray for all men, recognizing that God's in control. If we disagree with each other over something, you know what? You can always go to the higher authority. If we disagree with our president, we can pray for him and we can go to the higher authority and we can appeal to God and say, this is not right. If you don't agree with the mayor, if you don't agree with other authorities in your life, you can always go to the higher authority. 
God is still in control, and God is only patient right now. He's long-suffering because he cares about souls. It's not about our W, our W-2, our W-4. It's not about our retirement, our 401s. You see, being reminded that we can appeal to one who is holy and just changes the way we look at life. Now he goes on to say, quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and honesty. Godliness is the manner of life that reverences God. Do you know, we can live lives that honor God. Godliness reflects the character of him. Godliness ref reflects a right view of life. And honesty there has the idea of honorableness. It's more than just, um, did, you, did you do right? But it's living in an honorable way. We can worship God in an honorable way, a way that makes, that reflects God. But we're also wanting to live in godliness and honorableness among our peers. You see, our impact to be salt and light in this community, not only with respect to the church, how it impacts us, but also with respect to God. Notice what it says. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The word will there is the word, it's the Greek word thelo. It has the idea of the moral desire. It's a wish. It's God's wish that everyone would be saved. It's not that God forces that. But God's desire is that all of us, that everyone would be saved. Prayer agrees with God's desire. God's wishes that all men be saved. And we then pray that all men would be saved. God's wishes that all men would experience salvation. And how do we know that? Look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. God provided a mediator. Prayer focuses on God's goal. As we pray, let me encourage you, practice in private, but also be prepared in public. Pray for the things that are important to God. You always know that that's right. Um, we need to stay focused as a church on what God wants. It will keep us from getting pulled one way or another. We focus on doctrine. We focus on what God would want to accomplish. What does God want? God sent a mediator to bring everyone to God. God gave himself a ransom. You see, when we make prayer a part of our service, prayer changes our attitude toward the wrongs in this world and brings us back to a right view in life. That's why it's important that we meet every week. It doesn't take me very long to get off, to be upset, to lose my focus. And I assume most of you are kind of like me. Lest we view prayer as a way to get everyone quiet, 
or just a part of our worship service that's taken for granted, let's remember that Paul addressed prayer first in his list of how a church should operate. Our public services, our public worship reminds us to bring God into our daily situations and depend on God and remember his role in our daily lives. Prayer should always be a part of our personal life, but it is also important in our public worship. We're going to see next who all God says should be praying in church. This may be normal for you, or what we look at next, you may say, I didn't know that. It's part of God's guidelines for the church, but he also regulates how prayer is to take place in the services. On March 16, 1820, a lady named Mary Kidder was born in Boston, Massachusetts. And she was a poet. She liked to write. One article that I read said she wrote over a thousand poems. I know when I was looking, I found over 160 hymns uh, of her poems that were placed with music and are sung. When Mary was 16, she went blind. They thought it was going to be permanent. It wasn't until a year later, miraculously, her vision came back. She married in 1844, mother of three children. They moved to New York. And when the Civil War broke out, her husband enlisted in Company C of the 4th Regiment of New York. He died of disease in 1862, just six days after being a part of the Battle of Antietam. She was left alone with three children. And her writing, which had been a hobby, her poetry, which had been a hobby, now became really their source of income. One hymn that she wrote, one poem that she wrote, has really stuck around. If you'd like to open your hymnals to number 368. 368. I want you to notice this poetry. It may be a hymn, a song that you're familiar with. Ere you left your room this morning, before you left your room this morning, did you think to pray? In the name of Christ our Savior, did you sue or plead for loving favor as your shield today? The refrain which you hear after each of those questions she's going to ask is, Oh, how praying rests the weary. Prayer will change the night today, so when life seems dark and dreary, don't forget to pray. Notice that next verse, when you met with great temptation, did you think to pray? By his dying love and merit, did you claim the Holy Spirit as your guide and stay? When your heart was filled with anger, did you think to pray? That you might for, did you plead for grace, my brother, that you might forgive another who had crossed your way? When sore trials came upon you, 
did you think to pray? When your soul was bowed in sorrow, balm of Gilead did you borrow at the gates of day? Oh, how praying rests the weary. Prayer will change the night today. So when life seems dark and dreary, don't forget to pray. You know, as you, as you look at that text, prayer is the one thing that I think has become relegated to near unimportance in our society. We are movers and shakers. We are doers. We are figure-outers. I don't think that's a word. We, we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're Americans. And it's impacted the way we worship. Probably prayer meeting ought to be one of the most important things that we do. Often I hear people say, well, I don't think we have to pray together as a group. Well, obviously we ought to pray privately, but based on what we read in 1 Timothy, based on what Paul was saying was so important for a church that was headed for losing their first love, they became self-dependent rather than dependent. I just want to encourage you. Think about the importance of prayer. Think about the importance of prayer in our services and then in private. Prayer is a reminder that God is in charge and we can live peaceably even though we are in an unpeaceful world. Prayer reminds us of our needs and prayer reminds us of our Father's desire. We should be praying. We should be learning to pray. It's part of our daily life. It's part of our worship.